Hello and welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. My name is Nicole Bennett and I'm an urban and regional planner and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode, I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We are one of the host cities for the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast will help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead. So please take a minute from your busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode 13 of the Hustle and Bustle podcast. I've asked today's guest to be on the podcast to primarily discuss planning cities and places for women. I've invited Nicole Bolton to chat with me. Nicole is Principal Planner at PSA Consulting. She is also Chair of the Professional Development Committee for the Queensland Division Planning Institute of Australia. Nicole has two young children, works four days a week, volunteers her time leading this key committee of the Planning Institute, as well as volunteering on her son's PNC and all the other things that are required to successfully run a busy household. How are you today, Nicole? Thanks for coming and chatting with me. I'm good. I'm I'm a bit uh, excited to be speaking with you. Um, so thanks very much for having me on. But no, I'm, I'm well. Thank you. That's good. And yeah, I really wanted to get you on today. We had a chat recently and I just wanted to uh, firstly, chat about your role as the new PD chair for the Planning Institute and then discuss some of um, how you manage to balance or juggle the home life, work life, volunteering life and then hear about your passion, which is planning cities for women. Um, so we have a bit to cover, but if anyone can handle many things at once, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and firstly, congratulations on taking the reins as the PD chair for the Planning Institute. You've taken over from Roseanne, who was an absolute powerhouse in driving that committee and devoting exceptional time and energy into that committee over many years. Um, I know you've been a member of the committee for some time now, and that ongoing professional development is a passion of yours. Um, So I guess my first question is, why do you think it's so important for planners to continue learning and for PEER to have a strong PD offering? Yeah, thanks, Nicole. Um, Firstly, I just want to say that I think Roseanne is amazing. She is just so passionate um, and hardworking and organised, and she's been on the committee, I think, for 20 years or something like that. Um, So I joined the committee in, I think, around 2009, um, after I graduated in 2004. So I'd had a few years under the belt, um, and the committee was by then a well-oiled machine, um, so I've really learnt from the best and, and I've seen Roseanne in action now for many years. Um, so not to give away too many inside secrets, but Roseanne, um, she used to come to the committee with all these ideas. Like she came up with the idea for the premium series when she was sweeping a garage. Um, <laughs> like just doing mundane, the most mundane things. And so you can really see that she like lived and breathed Pia. And the PD committee, like she really loved it. Um, so we really are missing her, but, um, yeah, I have taken on the reins, um, as her successor, which is, uh, some big shoes to fill, but, um, her passion and drive has really set up that committee to be one of the best, um, 
but we also have a like a well-established committee. Um, so that's like a mixture of private, mixture of government, young, old, experienced, um, you know, people who work in housing policy, people who work in the development industry, transport planners, people like myself who are really passionate about DA, um, you know, university lecturers, a really wide range of, of people. And we all work together to make that PD program um, something that we can all be really proud of. But getting back to your question about why it's important for PR and for individuals to be um, doing regular PD events is that it's not just about making meeting your obligations in terms of what you need to do as a member of the institute, but you know, like it's really important to be across ideas and policies, new pieces of legislation, um, to hear the latest and greatest from the industry that's out there. Yeah. Um, and you know, we don't just get a degree and then know everything. Um, we really have to work at it. And so the PD program provides that opportunity um, for us to do that. Also, if you ever get asked um, to be a speaker at some of those things, it's really good um, way to give back to the profession as well. Speakers who come along and speak at our seminars, they get some good self-promotion as well, which is great for them and their their business. And, and uh, yeah, we really appreciate all the effort that goes into it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've um, been a little attendee at, at PD events because, as you say, it's such a great way of understanding what planners do and, and the breadth and depth of work that, you know, various people across the state do. And Oh, uh, totally, totally. And when we get back to hopefully face-to-face seminars next year, it also has that networking component as well, yeah. which I think we've all been missing in these COVID times. Yes, we have. We've been missing having a drink in our hands and, and chatting away, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, that's that's awesome. All right. Well, um, let's change pace from the PD committee and let's. I wanted to chat to you just with so many competing priorities that you have in your life and your finite amount of time that we all have. How do you manage to divide your time? without feeling completely stretched in many directions or that you're failing at everything, which is how I feel some of the time, um, because you just simply can't devote the time you would like in all directions. So I'm a, I'm a mother of two young children, as you mentioned. Uh, my youngest is in year, year one and my – sorry, my eldest is in year one and my <laughs> youngest is about to turn two tomorrow. Um oh. My husband's also a shift worker, so um, he kind of has a roster that, that rotates around. We can generally work out when he's going to be around, but, you know, they're 12-hour shifts. Um, so it does make for difficult times, but I'm really lucky that um, I walked into this job um, at PSA um, right after I was finishing my first lot of maternity leave. Um, so I was able to kind of set boundaries and set expectations um, for myself and for the company and, and for our clients um, as to when I was available. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I try to work to my set hours as much as I can in terms of being in the office. I might have to do some stuff when I get home, but it doesn't always work that way. But um, that's always the goal at least. Um so I'm very lucky that I have a supportive workplace and um, 
as you said, I work four days a week here um, and I generally try and catch up on volunteer stuff on the days that I'm at home um, to try and, um, yeah, get everything done, but also um, so that I can have some conversations with people um, during their business time so I'm not taking away from their weekends or whatever as well. Um, but I guess my top tips in terms of people who are feeling busy and hectic and feel like you're being pulled in each direction is knowing that you can say no to things. You yeah. can say, um, sorry, I just don't have the capacity to do that right now or um, uh, can I get back to you later or how urgent is it? Um, so really trying to set some clear boundaries around that. And it's being um, okay when other people do that to you as well, I think. Totally, some yeah. Some of us can maybe potentially feel a little offended if someone says no to us, but I think it's just it's not a reflection of us. It's a reflection of, of them trying to manage their time. Oh, totally. And I think that when someone says no to you, yeah, your immediate reaction might be, really? Oh, you know, like getting a bit cross about it. Yeah. Um, but I think in the age that we're in now with a real focus on mental health and boundary setting, yeah. that has really helped. I know that certainly helped in my um, in my life in terms of going, well, we, I don't know what's going on for that person. Yeah. You know, maybe I'll, work, I'll find a, a different solution, be a bit more creative or something. Yeah. Um, but in that regard also, I think one of the tips is getting help where you can. So that applies to at work and at home. Like, the more senior I have found as I've gotten in my work life, um, I think the more you should be delegating where you can. Um, yeah. Not only is that good for you because it gets stuff off your plate, um, but it also um, also being a control freak doesn't help you. It doesn't help anyone else. It just stresses you out. So trying to um, share the load, I guess. Yeah, um, and it builds up those younger planners as well that's how oh, totally. that experience yeah yep yep and trying to give feedback in that regard as well that's always important yeah no one's gonna no one's gonna learn if you just pick it up and just rewrite things yep. for people without providing that feedback loop yep um and in terms of feedback also another big one is communication so I think um here at work we've had to all get much better at communicating whilst um in the COVID times because working from home, you're not necessarily seeing people face-to-face. We've had a lot more, um, hey, guys, I'm not going to be in the office today or I'm going to be late or I'm going to be out or whatever, whereas before there was potentially uh, – well, there was an expectation that you'd be in the office, I guess, but also if you weren't there, it wasn't necessarily communicated all that well. So that's been a really big improvement. Um, Can I just uh, go back to delegating for a sec? Yeah, I'm sure. just interested in – I was just thinking that through and, and, and my experience is in that sometimes it can be perceived to take more of your time delegating and, yeah. and sort of, you know, um, supporting planners in their growth and development. I just wonder what, you know, do you have any kind of tips on how you how you delegate without it kind of taking more time, actually being efficient? Or is that just really um, something that's sort of a, a personal, like, you know, individual yeah, I think it can be individual. Um, it can be down to how much you, the person that you're giving the feedback to or you're giving the delegation to. Um, I try and um, always speak to someone face-to-face if I can um, to ask them. So that way they can kind of 
get what I'm saying a bit better, like rather than over email where it can be, yes. you can go off on the wrong tangent so easily. Yeah. Um, but also I think um, I try and give examples. So not to say, here, go and copy this report that we've done, but, you know, you might use the headings out of it or something yeah. to kind of, um, this is how I've done it. This is kind of my expectation of it's going to be 10 pages, not 100 pages, or yeah, that's great. it's not going to be two pages, like yeah. that sort of stuff. So, yeah, yeah trying to be really clear and, and um, giving a time frame for when need that buyer, when, and, and allowing it enough time to, okay, well, you know, the junior planner in the office is not going to um, be able to draft this perfectly the first time, yeah. and nor should they, um, giving everyone enough time so that we're not stressing them out by rushing them to try and meet a client, you know, deadline or something like that. Yeah. So they're probably my tips in terms of delegation. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, but the other thing I was just going to say is that if you're struggling, don't be afraid to seek um, mental health um, help. Um, I know that I've seen a psychologist um, in recent times just about managing that stress and that anxiety that might come from a variety of sources. But, you know, there's no – I know we hear it all the time, but it's okay to not be okay. And um, what I've really discussed with my psychologist is kind of doing things to make your life less stressful in little increments. Yeah. So in for me that has been um things like um getting to work the same way every day. So I was previously, oh my husband's going to be at home, so oh should he what should I do with the car and then should I oh should I catch the bus but then getting a bus home is going to be oh you know like now it's yeah. like no regardless of what he's doing, what the kids are doing, whatever, it's getting to the train station. So I that's one part of my life I can just sit in a yeah. box and put it away. I don't need to think about that anymore. Yeah. So that's been a really it's a it seems like such an obvious but such a tiny little thing. Yeah. I and that it. has that's really cool. helped. Like yeah, it sounds yeah, simple, but it's yeah. Sometimes and it's those little things that are the biggest load, isn't it? Like yeah. I mean it's such a timely reminder. It's mental health awareness week at the moment. Yep. And and I've been getting tips every day through the Arab um, we've got a Queensland Wellbeing Committee, yep. and and it was one of those sorts of you know just it's those little things that you can do to just make your days and your every moment kind of that little bit easier, which yeah. can reduce the load. Yeah, yeah, and that from all of that comes also the realization that you're human. The people that you're working with are human. You know, the family at home, they're all human. We we're all doing our best. Like try and cut yourself some slack. Um, you know, try and schedule some downtime, even if it's just five minutes with a cup of tea on the couch or whatever. Um, I'm not very good at that one, but I'm trying really hard because <laughs> um, sometimes five minutes is a long time if you've got, um, yeah, Things competing demands. Exactly. And, um, yeah. yeah, so I don't, I don't think I'm alone in saying that a lot of that load, um, the mental load, the thinking about stuff, the, the delegating, um, a lot of that falls to um, women, whether that be in the office, you know, who's organising the Christmas party, who's getting the biscuits that we need for the tea room, whatever. A lot of that can fall down to um, females yeah. and um, we really need to all work towards um, bridging the gap between the agendas to ensure um, equality 
and realizing that the invisible load, the mental load, um, sometimes it's harder than doing the actual physical tasks. So I think um, one thing I'm really trying to um, get better at is is um, yeah trying to share that that load between the genders. Yeah, and that's a great segue um, to this passion of yours, which is planning for women. So rather than women in planning, um, this is about sort of planning places and cities for women, which is really a topic that I think is starting to be discussed more, which is great. Um, I still don't think it's it's got anywhere near the spotlight that it probably should. Um, but I do think that people are starting to realise maybe just how poorly some places and spaces are designed for women. And I wonder whether you could just start to describe some of those key issues that women do face in cities? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'll start off by saying I'm not an expert in this space. Um, like you've said, it's a passion of mine. Like I actually work a lot in um, agricultural planning and development applications, so it's yeah, um, okay. it's a completely different task to what I do, you know, nine to five. <laughs> um, but I think planning for cities and public spaces is for women is just so important. Like um, so many of the places that we live in and that we um, walk through every day have been designed by men for men and it's not an attack on men. I think it's actually, it's a subconscious thing that, you know, all of our um, cities that we now live in um, were laid out when women were still um, primarily working in, in the home and not working in in a um downtown office like I am right now um but it also it's not just about planning as well it goes across a number of our um uh, allied professions you know architecture urban design engineering transport planning like the list can go on and on and on um but my contention really is is that if you plan for women you plan for everyone so that may be sound controversial but uh let me explain um (laughs) Um, like I'm speaking also, I'm speaking in general terms about gender, like um, some of it may come across as stereotypes, but there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, we have stereotypes for a reason um, and a lot of it is backed up by data. So um, it, uh, if you plan for someone pushing a pram, you're going to plan for someone who's in a wheelchair. And if you plan like safe spaces after dark, everyone's going to be safe after dark. Um, if you plan to make public transport more accessible um, for, say, a mother to run errands during the day while the kids are at school or daycare or wherever, you know, outside of peak times, then you're going to improve accessibility to public transport for everyone. Um, All the people. Yeah, totally. There is there is such a range of people out there. The unemployed, you know, people who yeah. might need to be getting around during the day. Yeah, there's so many different groups in our society that could be that could benefit from. Um, planning for women Um, and so engineering standards have tried to keep up you know we have DDA compliance you know disability um, access but just seeing women pushing prams and having a hard time you don't have to look too far to see that Um, and that's not to say that men don't push prams of course they do but primarily this falls to um, women as their role as the um, caregiver and so um, I've got a quote here from um, Jane Jacobs, who's the legendary 
um, urbanist and activist, and she said that successful, vibrant, happy cities arise out of the visions of many, not the powerful few. So I guess her contention is there that cities thrive on diversity. So, And that's not just meaning who we're planning for, but also who are the people that are making the planning decisions. And if you do a quick Google search, there is, like, honestly, if you put the words in urban planning for women, it will spit out 500,000, you know, individual websites or articles or pages on the topic. So I don't think I'm alone in the woods in this area, but that's kind of what got my, got my, got me thinking on this um, topic. But, you know, data and studies show that women feel unsafe moving around our cities. And that's not necessarily only at night. Um, it can be during the day, particularly for, um, you know, youth or um, homeless women. Um, well, I know I carry my keys in my hand to my car at the train station. Yeah. You know, I tuck my handbag under my elbow when I'm kind of walking in areas where maybe people are loitering. And I know for a fact that my husband doesn't do the same. Yeah, totally. Not that he carries a handbag, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like it, it, just not as cognizant of their surroundings. No. And, uh, you know, that may be the physical environment that they're walking through. It, it's also um, the socialisation and how we're brought up. You know, girls have to look after themselves and you have to wear the right thing and do the right thing and, and not be in that space at that time. But yeah. how about we just make the space, a, you know, an easy way for a, an, an urban planner to resolve that issue and to help on a societal level, is to improve the space that you're walking through, you know, um, which is, you know, where septed and those kind of um, concepts come from as well. But um, uh, also studies across the world highlight the difference of how women travel. So um, they might go back and forth across town doing shopping, you know, um, picking up, like I say, picking up kids, looking after the elderly. They're more likely to be um, carers for older family members um women generally um tend to do those smaller get the milk on the way do that you know do the drop off pop in and see nan whatever it is and that's part um, of that mental load that we were just talking about you know totally. that that's all of the things that we've kind of in our day we've got our work day but it's like okay and as well as that we've got to post some letters and do this and do that and we've got that mm-hmm. to-do list that requires us to run around town yes oh totally totally you know, women are also more likely to work part-time. I think they work something like, out of all part-time workers in Australia, 67% of those are women. Yeah. Um, so they're the ones who are taking on the flexible work hours. So they're not necessarily at work nine to five, Monday to Friday every week. And, you know, women are statistically more likely to outlive men in Australia. So it's 84 years to 81 years. Um, so they've got that extra, I guess, that extra time around and, and at that age, they're going to be more vulnerable um, and potentially more likely to um, you know, be at risk of living on their own or, or they might be the ones who are doing the running around looking after grandchildren and, and that sort of thing. So, Yeah, um, and it, yeah. Just, it just sparked my mind then that you know, women make up half the population. I think mm-hmm. we, we forget that, you know, so by not including them in our planning, we're, we're actually forgetting half the population. Yeah. And then the other thing that the statistics show that, elderly women, women between I think it's sort of 59 to 64 are most at risk of homelessness mm. um, and that's because of the the less superannuation that they've acquired through kind of working less because of that caregiving function. 
Yeah, totally. They, they, I think, uh, yeah, women over 55 are the fastest growing, um, cohort of people that are becoming homeless in our society. Yeah. Yeah. And you may not see that. You may not see that out on the street because they might be couch surfing or they might be in a shelter or, so there are a range of, um, yeah, factors that kind of lead to that. Also at the other end of the scale, in terms of public parks, studies show that after about the age of nine or ten, boys and girls use parks um, differently. By the time that they are getting out of needing to use the monkey bars and swings and that sort of stuff, they might move into um, organised sport. And so organised sport is generally a big field with two football goals at either end, which has traditionally been a boys' um, sport. So, And that's not to say that girls don't play those those type of sports of course but you know there aren't and there aren't such things as netball fields and all that sort of stuff but yeah there is a real drop off um in that uh which is another impact on our public spaces i know that in the um brisbane cbd here there are some buildings that have um in their foyer a disabled toilet and a men's toilet so there's no female toilet yeah i didn't know that being a woman was um, a disability but you know that sort of stuff is it all yeah. it all goes into sending a message about um, women and gender you know men are more likely to cycle so there's a bicycle New South Wales um, survey back in 2017 I think it was where men were shown to cycle more regularly like at a rate of say 10 percent more than women yeah. Um, yeah. and that's due to a lack of suitable infrastructure so um, that may be end of trip facilities, or it may be their safety on the on the ride. There's just so many. I could I could go on all day, and I won't. <laughs> um, but there is just clearly a multitude of ways yeah. that we are failing um, to plan for women in the urban space. Okay, so I'm just conscious of time, but I do want to ask you what can be done to address these issues and make women feel safer and more included in the design of cities. Do you think? Yeah, I think that feeling included is the is the point there. So, the, like I say, these issues go beyond urban planning. The number one way to make women feel safe and make cities work better for women is for women to be respected. Yeah. Um, but that's obviously not limited to urban planning. But there are a number of things that can be done in the urban planning space and urban design. Um, the city of Vienna is the gold standard in this regard. So a number of years ago, they started a program um, of gender mainstreaming is what they called it to and that that policy goes beyond urban planning but I'll, I'll I'll stick to those elements you know they've done a range of things in terms of going back and retrofitting a, a whole area of the city um, with better pedestrian um, facilities and infrastructure so they undertook this pilot program and they looked at uneven topography um, there was like about 30 metres between the highest and low point of this area of the city and 50 public staircases in in the that area, no ramps. So they kind of got together with all the areas of within um, their city council and they began running a series of workshops, um, coaching sessions, and over two years they led these pilot projects, which I'll just read you these statistics. Um, it resulted in 60, that's six zero, intersection improvements. So new pedestrian crossings, you know, smoothing uneven surfaces, that, that sort of thing. 
um, the widening of more than a thousand metres worth of pavement, the establishment of pedestrian lead, um, lead times at several intersections, additional seating um, in nine locations, improved lighting in 26 spots, installing ramps, installing elevators, um, removing obstacles on pedestrian paths. So they, they went about that and that was really successful and they've, they've now um, done that across the entire city through a, a new planning standard that now stipulates that all new sidewalks um, must have a minimum width of two metres and they've got guidelines as to how to retrofit um, stairs with pram ramps. Um, they've also have like social housing projects where they've um, gained another pilot project that they did with about 360 apartments in a building and they really put some thought into how it was designed and how women could use that space. Um, so that was done by four female architects. The brief included um, some flexible apartment layout so you can kind of adapt that over time. So whether you are young with, with young children or your kids have, you're an empty nester, the kids have left or you're, um, you know, you're, you've got a partner or you are elderly, they could kind of move the internal walls to kind of make bedrooms and take bedrooms out and, and make, um, kind of living spaces work for people. Yeah. But also that had communal laundries and, um, spaces that, um, overlooked a children's play area um, and kitchen windows that overlooked that. So it's kind of bringing in that social element as well that you could go and, um, you know, do your laundry in a space where there's, you know, there's space for multiple people to be there and to have a bit of a social element to that. And then, of course, communal storage space for like prams and bikes and and um, that was at the entrance of each apartment building. So they really put some thought into how they could design this, um, these buildings to improve that kind of living space for women. Yeah. And I guess um, closer to home, it's not all overseas examples, but, you know, closer to home, there's Safety After Dark. I'm not sure whether you've heard of that one, but no. it's, a, it's a project by Cardno and University of New South Wales where they basically use technology to geospatial, geospatially work out a passive surveillance index. So you can go onto the app and you can kind of go, well, this area is really dark after, um, you know, has no, no good lighting. You can go onto the app and then um, nominate that. And then that data can then be um, pulled together and they can use that to improve public spaces um, for women. And so it's, you know, if there's no one around, you feel a bit unsafe. Um, if there's um, broken infrastructure, that sort of stuff. But really, it's about um, being safe after dark. And again, that that puts the um, burden on women to to be, um, I guess, nominating that those sort of unsafe spaces. But at the same time, I think that it's a really positive in that it's open to anyone, and we can all work together to um, build better and safer places and you know you can you can do that elsewhere you could I guess you don't need an app or a, um, a geospatial data to come to those conclusions but um, if we can all kind of think about those sort of um, issues and and really have a gendered lens on the way we look at our cities and the way that, um, that we 
we bring to our projects to make spaces that women are going to feel safe, secure, included. And then it's it's not just about the physical alterations, although I know that I've I've mentioned a lot there, but the they're the quick wins and they will hopefully all build to a scenario in what in which we all feel safe and included and um, women can take part in that, um, um, our urban spaces and places. That's so, so enlightening. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I think you've wrapped that up so well. There's so, so much sort of that can be done to improve how our cities function for women. And as you say, that if you plan for women, you plan for everyone. And, and I think, you know, we shouldn't be um, shy or, or worried about sort of saying that, you know, we need to take a gendered view on, on some of these things and just to consider, you know, are we just planning how we always have, which I think is traditionally, you know, for, for potentially males. And maybe we haven't really considered how women and children and elderly and disabled and, and all of those other groups um, who make up, you know, probably the majority of the population um, yeah. together, you know, how they kind of can, can live and, and work and, and sort of recreate within our cities. But thank you. I really appreciate your time. And no worries. You on all of those issues. I know I threw a lot at you, <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, there was there was nothing there that I, I didn't want to um, capture on the podcast. Um, so thank you. I do appreciate it. No worries. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. It's been great to speak about that. And and like I said, there is, you know, you can do it. Google is your friend in this topic. Uh, you can go and find so many opinion pieces, so much data out there. Um, look up the city of Vienna and what the great work that they're doing. You know, if if Brisbane or Gold Coast or wherever in SEQ could pick up those kind of concepts, I think we'd all be richer for it. So thank you very much for having me. No worries. And thank you for tuning in to the Hustle and Bustle podcast this week. Um, you can follow the show on Instagram, hustle underscore bustle underscore podcast. We also have a home on LinkedIn, search Hustle and Bustle podcast and request to join the group. That's all from this episode. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye for now.